When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Jen Ag, restaurateur and author of I Hear She's a Real Bitch. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Hey, Jesse. Jen, the world of fine dining is in trouble. Celebrity chefs are losing their empires. Will we ever eat uni again? We're going to talk about a series of long reads on this disturbing trend. I actually don't even love uni. Like, for luxury foods, it's not it for me. Also, the saga of the New York Times caliphate debacle reaches its whimpering conclusion in an Ottawa courtroom. I was hoping that this would all just turn out to be, like, an elaborate Ali G movie gone wrong. And and, and actually, the truth is not too far from that. Glad to have you back. Thanks, pal. This episode is brought to you by Dylan Cook, Christopher Griffiths, Sarah Fitzgerald, Adam Arscott, Rachel Elliott, Michael Schwant, Stephen Lalonde, and Aaron. Hi, my name's Aaron. I live in Toronto, and I love to go for walks through the Don Valley. I love being kept company by Jesse and everybody at Canada Lands. I've really enjoyed the White Saviors program because as somebody who's been in the nonprofit world for more than 10 years, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Jen, I keep reading these stories. This was like the lead story earlier this week in the Globe and Mail. Canada's high-end restaurants face struggle to survive. Prior to that, I read about uh, celebrity chef Mark McEwen's troubles, his restaurant and gourmet foods business, his empire, files for creditor protection, citing a cash crunch. And not too long ago, there was this dishy piece that was going around in Toronto Life inside the rise and fall of the Buka empire. 
all very Toronto-centric, all very high-end dining-centric. I mean, you know, Toronto Life's going to be Toronto-centric, but the Globe stories, all of these stories about the difficulties that high-end restaurants and fine dining are encountering in this post-COVID universe told from the perspective of celebrity chefs, restaurant empires, like even from the perspective of like investment firms, quotes like, people at home don't necessarily want to order in a $70 tenderloin dinner And when we talk about the labor side of this, uh, the Peace in Toronto Life actually did get into the labor stuff, though that wasn't really how it led. But, you know, they they did look at it from the perspective of workers. But a lot of this stuff, like restaurant staff who were making $18 per hour pre-COVID can now demand $25 to $28, restaurant owners say. I feel like there are some assumptions about who we're supposed to relate to in these stories. I'm curious. Is the question finally coming? It's coming as the as a titan of your own restaurant empire. How are you perceiving this this uh, this like narrative about what's happening with restaurants? Like, what is the story here? Is the story that, as you see it, that there's a big restaurant industry beyond a few like hoity-toity fine dining Toronto sure. spots? Like, it's 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 fun to read about these. We've been building up these rock star chefs, just celebrity chefs, but there's another thing happening here that I'm a bit more concerned. I'm wondering what you think. Well, first of all, I mean, I think just in terms of the the buka piece it is filled with this sort of um i would i guess call it faux disgust at what is happening which is hella ironic considering the writer's role in building up that restaurant and restaurants like that for more than a decade and being really a part of the problem that has put restaurants where they are now and to sort of write this piece that's like condemning of all that with very little caveat around that is quite an eye roll for me. That's one perspective that I have. That's a very me centric perspective, but that's why you had me on the show. But then, you know, to also really be focusing on like poor restaurant owners As the restaurant owner, yes, things are bad if the subsidies, and I would consider my restaurants, I mean, it's, I hate the sort of the term casual fine dining, but that's kind of what they are. And Grey Gardens may be a little more fine dining. So I I understand the woes of these men, and they are mostly men. There's a labor shortage. And I know what people say when the word labor shortage is ever spoken by any boss. It's actually not a labor shortage. It's a good work shortage. And that's totally fair and reasonable, especially when it comes to the restaurant business. So I, I mean, I think I think in as much as there's been a kind of reckoning about the actual working conditions in restaurants, the way people are exploited or abused or any, you know, we all, we all sort of know what's happening right now. I don't know that there's been any real change. And I think that that is causing people to leave the industry in droves. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I really feel sorry for like the Mark McEwens and the high end steakhouse owners of the city. Like they've had a good run. They're in their sixties. Retire bitch. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was thinking you'd say. I don't feel too differently. What we're seeing, I think, is like something that's been going on for a long time. I had this one dinner party experience with Mark McEwen, celebrity chef, media personality, Top Chef Canada dude. And, you know, it was back when our mutual acquaintance, Corey Mintz, was hosting uh, dinner parties for his old column. And Mark McEwen was there. And he was like 
just basically there to cheerlead for Doug Ford's plan at the time. Oh, that does not surprise me. Yeah, like Doug Ford wanted to open like a, a casino in Ontario Place and have a Ferris wheel. And people were like, Toronto is like paralyzed with construction and traffic. Why would you open a casino right at the epicenter of downtown Toronto? And McEwen was there like, oh, I think it's a great idea. Oh, and he going to get the restaurant contract for that? Yeah, he was there because yeah, like, this was a guy yes. – who had made a name for himself and was like a Canadian answer to certain American celebrity chefs. And people were lining up to put millions of dollars into his restaurants. And that was like, he would follow the money and open up a big fine dining place anywhere that somebody else was willing to pay for it. And I can't give you full credit for this, Jen, but it seems like something started in food somewhere in the 2008 or so, 2009, like, and your friend Tony Bourdain with this whole rock star chef thing and, like, really, like, let's strip away all of the fancy bougie stuff and let's get, like, just good food in, like, a rock and roll atmosphere and let's, like, let's, let's like, have an open kitchen and really, like, you know, vibe with the behind-the-scenes, like, hard living, hard drinking. Like, like, it started there and then it just got like everything glossed up and glitzed up and, and pumped up. And, you know, Ruined. we were referring be- Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, Chris Nettlesmith, who wrote the book of piece, which I thought was a terrific and well-investigated piece, but you bring up a valid point. I thought so too, by the way, despite my eye roll about it. And, and I think you have maybe a conflict in that there's, you know, uh, Chris Nettlesmith wrote some stuff about one of your joints and there's bad blood from. No, no, one- no, not no? at all. Okay. No. I just want to get it all out there for our listeners. But anyhow, he was absolutely, and he he owns this in the piece, he was building up Buka. And, you know, Buka was pretty good. But, like, he was building up, like, this this empire, which was, like, kind of this crazy story of um, taking out, like, these, like, mafia-style loans and, and leaving mushroom purveyors and different people, you know, holding the bag, millions and millions of dollars in debt. But everyone, by the way, Jesse, everyone knew about this for years and years and years and years. This was not news to anyone working in the industry. That Buka was just digging this massive, massive grave for itself. Yes. Yeah. And that they were hugely, hugely exploitative of their workers and borderline abusive. So here we are now, and it's fun to watch. Like, it's a game that we play. It's like this Vanity Fair thing of like, oh, we've built up these huge glossy brands. Now let's watch them all crumble. And I just wonder if, like, the coverage is like, wait, but, like, it was never sustainable. And it was only almost like a cult where you could get people to work for these ridiculous wages. It feels like we're playing a game of, like, we inflated a balloon. The media, like, inflated a big balloon of big money food. And now we're having fun popping the balloon. And it's dishy and fun to read those stories. But maybe we're missing the point of what's actually happening. Well, I mean... it's, it's hard for me to, I think, be that objective about this because I've been talking about it for so long and I've been so vilified for talking about these kinds of bad actors and bad restaurants for so long and alienated in the industry um, for daring to sort of say anything about it. And so now when it feels like, for lack of a better way to put it, people are starting to catch up to that, I don't know that that they're also thinking, oh, yeah, here's this person in our city who has been talking about this. They're thinking that they've just sort of discovered it. And that can be very frustrating. So I, I, can't, it's, I can't speak to it that objectively. But I can say that I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing that a company like Buka gets a takedown like that, even if it's sort of 
um, maliciously gross the way that everybody eats it up. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And what do you think about like another celebrity chef who was in the Globe piece, Vikram Vidge, saying profit margins are razor thin. You're lucky if you you know like have a five percent profit margin at the end of the day. So we can all talk about how we need to raise the wages, but that just makes the whole enterprise impossible and we won't have restaurants anymore. That's basically the economic argument. I don't think that's true. I mean, first of all, you need to raise the price of food to raise the wages. Like that's obvious. And I think that's something that diners sometimes don't want to grasp. But at the same time, restaurants have survived so much and they're going to survive this too. And there's always going to be rich people going to fine dining restaurants. I don't think that they're in the sort of perilous place that they claim to be in. And I don't, again, I'm not saying that this, this has been awful for everyone. Obviously I understand that. And I don't think, I think fine dining, one of the takeaways from that piece for me was how fine dining doesn't really translate to takeout. But I, I also think that you can be innovative about it and you can be like, fuck, you know what? We're fine dining we're not going to be sending people home with a 12 course, tiny little plates meal, but maybe we can make the best burger on earth or, you know, we can figure out a thing. And I I think that the restaurants that sort of are able to do things like that and roll with the punches are going to be fine. You know, we're pretty much at the tail end of this. So my feeling is if you've made it this far, you're going to you're going to make it through with the exception that there are maybe some back taxes you might owe. I wonder if this like incessant focus on the very, very high end and the celebrity end of uh, and fine dining itself is not like a weird red herring. The bigger question is, can like the entire rest of the restaurant industry come out the other side of this and will people still work in restaurants? And do the economics of restaurants still make sense, which we're seeing a lot less focus in the media on that story yeah, I know. It's really awful. Like the stuff, I, I don't want to make it any, you know, less Toronto centric, but the stuff about, say, 11 Madison Park going vegetarian, it's just like, get out of here. Are you guys serious? There are so many other stories to focus on aside from these very rich people backed by literal, like, hedge funds. Like these are hedge fund restaurants. For me, they're not the lifeblood of the industry. I mean, I understand how it works. And I understand that things that happen in high end restaurants often trickle down, you know, like the best way to a good example is um, more than a decade ago with pork belly and seeing something like that happen where all of a sudden like milestones is selling pork belly. And you know, that's how that happened. And everybody becomes more aware of the food trends that are infiltrating at first sort of this very limited sphere where not a lot of people have access So yeah, those restaurants are going to be fine. There's going to be people that continue to pump money into them. But the rest of the industry definitely could use some media attention that it is not getting. And that's partly because we don't have food media in Toronto. Like, I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but there just isn't a food media anymore. Not really. There's no restaurant critics. There are influencers and Instagrammers. That's not even a thing. Well, we have food influencers. We have food Instagram, which has sort of taken the place of restaurant critics in terms of telling people, here's the next thing you need to eat. And you'd think that that would be more democratic, but I don't think that it is. I remember you not being so hot on restaurant reviewers, and now they're dead. They're gone. And now what they're replaced with first was Yelp, and now it's Instagram. It ain't much better. Jesse, that's not fair. As much as I might get annoyed by, say, having a review of my personality instead of a review of my restaurant, which I believe is a pretty reasonable thing to be annoyed by. 
it doesn't mean that I don't have respect for people who are good at it or respect the art of criticism. I absolutely do. And it sucks that we don't have good critics to support the industry now. Yeah. You know, you bring up uh, pork belly. I'm kind of glad you did because I've been thinking about this. You first entered the scene during a collapse of fine dining. That kind of was what precipitated the food trend and the restaurant trend that you brought into this country, which had to do with like all of these really well-trained chefs were kind of like loose because there weren't as many jobs at fine dining places in 2008 at the recession. And this innovation of like, let's let's go to a part of town where leases are cheap. Let's turn a bar into a restaurant. Let's take fine cooking techniques and style and use off cuts, cheap things that other people don't want and remember where cooking comes from. And then we see this cycle where that just like the prices went up and the yeah. celebrities got inflated and now it's collapsed again. Is this just not like the cycle playing itself out again? Sure. I mean, I think that's something to be very aware of, too, is that things become really hot for a minute and and then they become mainstream and they fade. And that that cycle seems to, you know, increase or has obviously gotten faster and faster the more that we are connected over social media. Like it used to take a little bit longer for the hot band in Melody Maker to trickle down to the mainstream in some ways. But I also think that we're starting to see a little bit of an off-cut revival right now, which I'm sure has something to do with economy, even though it's not cheap anymore. <laughs> like, I'm definitely seeing it. I'm seeing sweetbreads. I haven't seen sweetbreads in you know five, six years on a lot of menus. And I think that we're going to start to see that a little bit because we've been very veg-focused for, what, let's say five years. We've been very focused on lighter food, vegetables, highlighting that. And I don't think that's going to go away. And the same way that I, I think something like charcuterie or bread programs just became part, they just became part of regular good restaurant menus. They just became part of what a restaurant was selling. So now it's not like a place is necessarily like focusing so much on charcuterie, but they, if they're a good restaurant, maybe they have their own little charcuterie program. So I, I think that's what kind of happens with the good parts of things that get hot is they just they just, they just become part of it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities – you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder. I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, 
pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Jen Ag, my buddy, we like to duly note things on this show when, when there's something that more people should know about. You know, it's a service that we provide. Can I share something with you, Jen? Uh-huh. I don't know if you caught this piece in, in the Globe. KGB archives show how Christia Freeland drew the ire and respect of Soviet intelligence services. This story kind of comes out of nowhere about how, like, secret files have been revealed, and it portrays our now Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland as this, like, globe-trotting spy hero. It's a fascinating story. The infamous KGB praised Christia Freeland's savvy even as she frustrated their attempts to spy on her in Cold War Ukraine. They tagged her with a codename Frida. But today we know Christia Freeland as our deputy prime minister. I enjoyed reading this thing, but I'm just like, why is this here? I mean, it was written by this guy, Simon Miles, assistant professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Like, where did this come from? And then Tom Mulcair, uh, former NDP leader Tom Mulcair, writing in CTV, writes, A breathless account of Christia Freeland's heroics in Ukraine, published over the weekend, must have put a smile on the face of our deputy prime minister. Let's face it, she's positioning herself to take over as leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. And this type of publicity is tailor-made made to help her achieve that ambition. And that made a certain sense to me. Like, it really did feel like this was like, we're kind of just being subjected to this like information campaign that leads to an inevitability that Christia Freeland is the new leader of the Liberal Party and then the Prime Minister of Canada. And I'm just like, I don't know the backstory as to what the Globe's role in this is, if this got fed to them, if they were like, yes, we too have an editorial agenda of getting rid of Trudeau and installing Christia Freeland, or if this was just like, hey, great story, let's publish it, and somebody else is managing some larger PR campaign. But it did really feel like there was some kind of political machination behind the scenes, and maybe like as Mulcair suggests, we're all supposed to just be like, yep, that's how it's done. And what I'm duly noting, not the piece, which was very popular and and not something that that went under the radar. But like this thing that often happens in Canadian media, especially with the Globe and Mail, where you really get a strong sense that levers are being pulled and we're supposed to be led down a certain path to think of things in a certain way to lead to some other move that someone's contemplating. And it doesn't sit well with me and it doesn't feel transparent or forthcoming to me. But isn't that what media is? I mean, I've personally experienced so much of that, that of course I believe that that's what is happening in the media often. Obviously, that's what, you know, PR agents exist. Like people try to manipulate the media to achieve a certain goal. I just feel like the globe at times is acting as a representative of its reader telling you what's going on. And at other times it feels like they're kind of playing their cards close to their chest and whether they're kind of in on it or not, or what happened or why it happened, we're left in the dark about. And it's sort of just this organ of the powers that be in a way that I find kind of incompatible with the idea that the press represents the public. You know what I mean? I do, but I don't think you're ever going to fully know because whenever those conversations are happening, they're happening like with two people behind closed doors and not over text message if they're smart. 
Yeah, it's just that I would hope that one of those people isn't in the newspaper business, but maybe that's naive of me. <laughs> Come on. That's uh, duly noted, Jesse. Jen, I know that you've put a tremendous amount of time into uh, your duly noted today. What do you have for us? I was very clear with your producer that I had nothing for you because I am trying to relax on a mini vacation. I am out of town for three days and I agreed to do this out of my my deep devotion to you, my friend. So I guess I could say that my duly noted is if you can escape the city for a couple of days and watch the leaves turn over rolling hills, then you should really do that. Vacations are good. Duly noted. I have one more. This is something that I think deserves wider attention. CBC reported that there is a state of emergency in Iqaluit. There's fuel in the tap water. Sorry, what? There is fuel in the tap water. You can't boil it out. There's fuel. It's poisoned. And people are flocking to the nearby Sylvia Grinnell River to gather drinking water, which is going to freeze over very soon. And there is no other water source. There's a run on bottled water and who in a Iqaluit can go and like buy all the bottled water and who can't. And what the hell is going to happen in a Iqaluit if there's no drinking water is maybe a news story deserving of wider attention. Duly noted. Jen, can I pitch you a, a podcast idea? Okay, what's the troll here? No, it's a story. This is just like I think this would make okay. this would make a great story. Like, listen, okay, so here's the here's the plot. This is the elevator pitch here. Twenty something slacker guy from Burlington lives with his parents, spends a lot of time on the internet, starts making shit up online. That actually he's a soldier in an elite international brigade. And his bullshit is taken seriously by various researchers, and they make reports of threats, and his name gets on the list. And then that list gets into the hands of a rising star reporter for the New York Times who tracks the guy down in Burlington and interviews him. And he just feeds her like a crazy bullshit story. And she falls for it hook, line and sinker and even eggs him on to take it a little bit further. You need to talk about the killings. She urges him. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, sure. Killings. Like, I totally did killings. Uh, let, me, let me think back on all those killings I did. The blood was just, it was warm. And it sprayed everywhere. And the guy cried, was crying and screaming. He did not die after the first time. The second time or so, he probably just flunched over. That was... How hard is it to put a knife into somebody? It's hard. I had to stab him multiple times. And then we put him up on a cross and... I had to leave the dagger in his heart. She turns these interviews into a prestige podcast all about this guy's evil deeds fighting for ISIS in Syria. Oh, shit. That's crazy. Okay? And she makes this this podcast, and it's rolled out on the daily, which is like millions of people listen to this, and it's like, mwah, this is like boutique prestige podcasting. This is journalism of the highest order. It gets nominated for a Pulitzer. It wins the Peabody Award. Meanwhile... As a result of this, like, this is embarrassing for Canada. The New York Times is reporting that we've got a, a real live murdering terrorist walking the streets of Burlington and conservative MPs lambast the Trudeau government and the conservative press has a field day. 
Why do they have to find out from the New York Times that a terrorist murderer is just walking the streets free in Canada? What does Justin Trudeau have to say for himself about this? And here we'll hear Member of Parliament Candace Bergen. Canadians deserve more answers from this government. Absolutely. Why aren't they doing something about this despicable animal? And then Candace Malcolm, another Candace, writing in, yes, Post Media, The Sun, Imagine the incompetence of the Trudeau government letting an admitted ISIS murderer live freely in Canada and on top of it receive a taxpayer-subsidized education at a Canadian university. What's next for him? A $10 million check? And so it's embarrassing the government and so law enforcement springs into action and they come find the guy, but they can't make a case. They can't even find evidence that he's ever left Canada for Syria. So instead, Jen, instead they charge him with something else. They charge him with pretending to be a terrorist, perpetrating a hoax. So now the guy is in a particular bind. The cops are like, admit it, you're guilty. Admit that you're not a terrorist. I'm innocent. I'm actually a terrorist. Well, that's actually much worse. Okay, I'm innocent. I made it all up. Okay, good. We've established that you're guilty. You can go home to Burlington now. Go home to your parents. That is what happened. That is what happened with Shiroz Chaudhry. That is truly bananas. I have one question. I mean, I have a lot of questions. Why did he do this? Like the why has not been answered for me. Why does some trifling guy who lives with his parents lie on the internet and act like he's some international big shot killer? You don't, you don't know why? Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit nuts. Why do dudes lie about lots of things on the internet? I don't know. Okay. It's not like, this is not lots of things. This is beyond lots of things. Like this is pretty, it's a pretty fucked up lie to tell. I've maintained for a long time that if you have a lot of people dressing up as Batman, someone's going to dress up as the Joker. So law enforcement is on this constant 24-7 terrorist watch, and there's people surveying the internet and looking for terrorists, and we've turned the ISIS fighter into, this is like the biggest boogeyman. So that imbues a lot of power and juice into the persona of the ISIS killer. And I think it's just a matter of time before someone puts up their hand and says, me, I'm the killer, I'm the terrorist, because that's super badass. I think that basically the anti-terrorist surveillance state creates these figures. Yeah, okay, all right. Anyhow, it's, yeah, maybe. it's a wild debacle. The New York Times has yet to actually retract caliphate in full. It's over, it's collapsed. He was never in Syria. It was all bullshit. It was bullshit from the New York Times. Wow. How did that stuff get past fact-checking? I don't understand. Like, you would think that there'd be people looking into the truth of what this person said. I mean, that is an excellent question. And the Times, as much as they've said anything, they've said that, like, their normal processes didn't work here because it was podcasting and they didn't have the same filters. And now, as a result, they've got, like, better filters and they've got, you know, excellent fact-checking for their podcasts as well. And, like, certainly, I think that's kind of a bullshit excuse, but I do feel like the fact that they turned this into this big, epic, cinematic thing, I think, did cloud their judgment. I don't think you can blame it on podcasting, but I think the Times fell in love with this kind of like, you know, if telling this in print wouldn't have had the same impact and it wouldn't have had the same audience. And Rukmini Kalamachi, the, the reporter behind this, I think was able to get away with stuff that other reporters wouldn't have because of the way she was telling it and because the stuff was so new. Huh. Well, it's a pretty wild ride. Crazy shit. That shortcuts. Jen Ag, thank you. No, thank you. 
We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed. I'm at jesse at CanadaLand.com. Uh, I read everything that you send. Jen, where can people find you? Um, Twitter. I'm on Twitter at the Black Hoof, and I'm on Instagram with something else, just my name with some underscores. Hey, Jen, uh, mining is like a big fucking deal in Canada, bigger than you might think, and the stories from the world of mining are jaw-dropping, and our show Commons just launched their new season all about stories from the world of Canadian mining. Go listen to that podcast. It's awesome. I'm actually in the middle of listening to another podcast. It's called The White Saviors. It's pretty good. Oh, you're listening to the show. I am. It's great. I really like it. Thank you. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by so-called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to support what we do, uh, go to canadaland.com slash join and we'll give you ad-free podcasts and other stuff and we do need your support. Go to canadaland.com slash join. 